0: Welcome to the Bridge the Divide podcast with Erica Turner and Heidi Wheeler, hosts and founders of the group Bridge the Divide Cedarburg. We hope to provide a forum for discussion and action around racial reconciliation. We seek to identify instances of inequality, foster empathy, and educate others to recognize their part in problems and solutions in Ozaki County and beyond. thanks for joining us again on the bridge the divide podcast uh we are always looking for uh exciting and interesting people knowledgeable people to share with us and today we bring back an old favorite oh i can't call you old a previous favorite (laughs) dr raj sanpath how are you raj
1: i'm doing well erica thanks for having me back
0: yes it, it is great you are um uh Professor at uh, Brandeis, give me give me all of your uh, your accolades there, Dr. Raj.
1: Well, I I don't know about accolades, but (laughs) factual data on my uh, my official title is I'm the associate professor of the philosophy of justice, rights and social change at the Heller School for Social Policy and Management. And our tagline at our graduate school is knowledge advancing social justice. So my job is to not only teach and, and research, but to think about how we can connect to the outside world when it comes to a myriad set of social justice issues that are very contemporary.
0: All right. Well, I and the reason why we um, we were trying to make sure that we could get in touch with you again is you were one of our guests when we had the um, show about um uh, to Killing Mockingbird, and we were talking about just, we had so much packed into that show, and I've had several people who've told me, you know, well, well, who was the gentleman that was there, and, and we need to hear more from him, and it was my job to try to contact you again so that we could get more from you. <laughs> you were, Well, I'm
1: glad to be back. And yeah. I, I do recall that conversation. It was really, it, it was so scintillating to see that we were just tapping the surface, it seemed.
0: Right, right. It was a
1: Very complicated issue.
0: Definitely complicated. Definitely. Well, and one of the things I guess I want to start out with is we, we talked about, um, I don't know if it was your phrasing or somewhere else that I've heard about the minority, the majority-minority, and we were talking about the, the generation Zs and the millennials and how that's going to look. Can you start us out with that, um, paint that picture again for us and what it's going to look like here shortly?
1: Sure. I mean, it's, it's also a reflection of my environment working in higher education at, at universities where the old adage is that we get older every year, and they yeah. stay in the same age bracket, <laughs> so... We get to this accelerated perception of our own aging vis a vis uh, a a community of young people that come in every year. But the values are changing rapidly. And so when I talk about generational differences, the US Census every year changes its uh, format, and so every 10 years, excuse me. And so the next one that's coming up is 2020, and we can get into the racial and ethnic classifications of that. But from the generational perspective, I'm Gen X, so those are births from, let's say, roughly 1960 to 1979. Uh, I'm 48. Millennials would be births from, let's say, 1980 to 2000. But now, very quickly upon us, for example, our, our freshmen that started this year births from 2000 to uh, to now, so those births in 2000, they're freshmen in college. And it's it's so hard to imagine that the new generation is, has arrived and um, – the distinctions based on a lot of social scientists, at least between that zero to eighteen, let's say eighteen to thirty-six, the boundaries are kind of permeable. I mean, there's a common set of interests and issues regarding the environment, um, sexual identity, pluralism and diversity, um, you know, gun regulation,
2: mm-hmm.
1: concerns about sustainability with regard to our our democracy, quite frankly, and that's why you see a lot of young people running for office. You mm-hmm. see the new Congress. So it's a tremendous time, and if you add it up, 0 to 36 as a whole bracket is going to be the future foundation of our society. And we thought to ourselves, oh, okay, well, you know, it's not going to happen for another 20 years, or everyone wants to kick the can down, they don't want to think about this. It's here, and, mm-hmm. and and I'm one of those individuals that wants to be more cognizant, not only about current events in the present that we all talk about on the news, for example, your show – But what happens when the future arrives much sooner than we thought? And then what what does that mean with regard to equity, justice, um, equal rights for all groups, uh, individual and, and group identities?
0: I think that that is, I think we talked about this before, too, that that is really scary for a lot of people. So where you are trying to figure out how to navigate well, in that new space, that we have folks that are just fearful of that new space, Um, and... Yeah, I mean, that's right, in the sense that it's
1: astonishing to me when I say zero to 18, obviously three-year-olds and and five-year-olds are not going to college, but if there's an acceleration in terms of the way identities form on the individual basis, group basis, uh, the intersections, the complexity of different individual identities, that young people get to articulate their values a lot sooner. Um when I was thinking about the Parkland shooting, I mean it was just so astonishing. It's the tragedy of our society when you have fourteen, fifteen, sixteen year olds who can better articulate in front of the adults mm-hmm. the need for gun regulation. So you you know you're seeing this maturation process accelerate, map to the diversity and yet All of our institutions and those that run them, which are currently the Gen X generation above, uh, 55 and over, and then, of course, boomers. Obviously, if we go back in time, our society is less diverse. Mm -hmm. And um, for me, one of the the longest struggles in our country, obviously, has to be the African-American experience from slavery to the present, and, and the legacy of the genocide of, of indigenous peoples and Native Americans. So, mm-hmm. And, of course, other ethnic groups and come at different stages in our history with their own complicated sets of issues with regard to racism and inclusion and integration across a whole set of issues, whether it's housing or voting or equal you know, opportunity, um, anti-discrimination, affirmative action in schools. So, But the black-white binary is something that I think... When we think about this diversity, on the one hand, we need to preserve the historical memory and the, this continuity of of who suffers the most based on what categories. Mm-hmm. And then you think about the complexity of that. And for me, I, I always tend to, to the African-American experience because not, not only the longest standing nature of the oppression, but the kind of oppression. Mm-hmm. I mean, there is an anti-black racism that's so pervasive, people say, okay, well, it's, you know, it's not the Jim Crow, it's not white supremacy, it's not, uh, you know, the essentialist arguments that were made in the 19th and 20th centuries about white superiority having some kind of biological foundation. It can't be that.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, quite frankly, that's, that mentality is persisting. Mm-hmm. And it's being condoned and aided and abetted by, you know, political discourse today when they fail to react to those kind of egregious events like Charlottesville. Right, right. Um, but when I speak of the complexity of this Gen Z and millennial, the baseline is that the non-Latino Latinx, which is in- gender-inclusive of Latino-Latina, but X, uh, formerly known as Hispanic, Hispanic just means Spanish-speaking, and the geographic location is Latin America and South America, so anything South and North America. we The current census is divided between what's called the non-Latino, non-Hispanic, realm, and then the Hispanic-slash-Latino-Latinx realm. Okay. And then you can scaffold the races into each group. So, for example, I would be categorized, because my parents are from India, as a non-Latino, non-Hispanic Asian-American, and that's everyone from Pakistan all the way to China, uh-huh. Taiwan, Hong Kong. So that's Asia, and they're people of African descent. Caucasian right now, is based on the current census, is non-Latino, non-Hispanic, White would be people of European descent, Arab, North African, Israel, the Middle East all the way up to Iran, but that's where it stops, and Central Asia. So that's whiteness right now on the non-Latino, non-Hispanic side. Hmm. That group is below 50% for the Gen Z. Millennials, let's just say 55%, so slight majority white. Gen Xers like myself, obviously less diverse, but mm-hmm. not not too far behind. It's the 55 and over,
2: mm-hmm.
1: quite frankly, where you see less diversity. And one of the fastest growing groups is multiracial.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So if it was 1% in 1960 because of the anti-miscegenation laws, mixing of, of black and white and marriage, You know, 10% of our society and the fastest growing, people forget that Barack Obama was the first multiracial president. Right. Um, as opposed to just you know the first African American president right. meaning two parents of two descent, we can complicate these categories. So the complexities here. The question is, do we have the ability for four different generations to coexist? Let's say 70, 70 and over, fifty five to seventy, Gen X, you know, thirty six to fifty, Millennial. Twenty-two to thirty-six. However, you want to divide zero to eighty. You know, we have four coexisting generations, and what we're seeing being played out both in the media, cultural production, higher education, politics is just for me a complete inability to understand across the generations, and that to me is a unique moment for us mm-hmm. in our history.
0: Mm-hmm. And to even to build that understanding. So, so say you have um, enough curiosity to kind of dig into it and see that there is an issue with the understanding um, between these groups how do you how do you get them to a point of being able to understand each other I mean is it really is it are they so segregated as groups that they're never you're never going to get the 55 year old to understand the 18 year old Um, and if you can do it then how do you do that
1: Well, I think the ideal of all uh, secular, liberal, constitutional democracies, which we find uh, certainly in Western European societies here in the U.S., I can differentiate the European context from the American context, the American historical context, is quite unique for a lot of reasons. I mean, first, for the critical race series, for example, the African American movement that took place in America's law schools saying that focusing on individual racism or incidents of discrimination doesn't really speak to the structural features of our society, mm-hmm. which is rooted in white privilege. Mm-hmm. First it was white supremacy, and now one can argue it's this kind of colorblind uh, white privilege, which is, on the one hand, the inability to see legacies of systems of oppression, racial oppression, get continued, or new forms or new modalities of racism emerge that are less severe when we think about physical atrocity. Now, Black Lives Matter is challenging that notion because what used to be a white mob that acts with impunity, because the state wouldn't intervene on, in, in terms of protecting the basic rights of, of black people to just survive in society, it took the civil rights to call attention to that, let alone overturn the entire, you know, the, the evil of segregation, which was supposed to be the replacement to the evil of slavery. Mm-hmm. You know what, what Black Lives Matter tries to call into question is that the, the, the structure of power and force is now transferred to the state, where the state can act under the law, namely the police, acts with impunity when um, you know unarmed black people who are pulled over for very basic infractions. Snowballs into this you know, these tragic events, which which leads to uh, you know homicide. Essentially, it's like state execution and judgment and all at the same time, and it's being publicly viewed. So we can think about the degradation and the dehumanization of that. It, it, I, I question, on the one hand, people that speak about progress when I, when I think about how, how egregious the, the, the level of, of racial tension and racism has gotten in this country. Because mm-hmm. people want to, just, let's just talk about the facts, when I mean, you talk about categories, like, oh, I've seen improvement here, or, okay, we have representatives in the government, but you know we got to talk about the conditions of, of daily life for the masses and
0: um dr raj let me stop you right there we're going to need to get to a break and we'll come right back after the break and great thank you Alrighty, righty. Thanks for um, giving us time for a little commercial. So we were talking with Dr. Raj about, um, you know, folks that are claiming progress. This is not slavery. It's not the Jim Crow South. It's not even what we were doing in civil rights time frame. So we've progressed, right? We're there. Are we that, there?
1: That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Shouldn't uh, Are we picking up now? Yeah. Or? Yep. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah. Go ahead. Great. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so if if I wanted to pick up from where we were leaving it, this this dialectic of progress was um you know on the one hand we can we can talk about different ways to measure inclusion and improvement of different racial groups and, and ethnic groups and and we should and that's what is the basis of policy obviously and hopefully that can inform enlightened discussions when we have a more diverse electorate and a, a diverse representative government to be able to handle the complexity of a whole host of social policy issues. That's true. My earlier point was that the diversification of society not only may lead to a clash of values across generations, and not just along fixed lines, like there could be debates for or against abortion, mm-hmm. you know, or issues of physician-assisted suicide, which is a, a right that's not guaranteed right now. It is in other Western governments that have uh, that as a national law, transgender rights. I mean, there's so many different issues that we can talk about with regard to basic rights in a diverse pluralistic system. Mm -hmm. I guess what I was getting at is that when there is a confluence of the existing systems of oppression, when there's physical force and violence and oppression that come upon people Either through the state or through a state that fails to act to protect basic rights when mobs can act, you know, and, and execute violence against innocent people. I'm thinking about the shootings, for example, mm-hmm. um, of racial minorities. i was thinking about the um, in South Carolina, the white shooter of uh, the black church. Mm-hmm. You know, so there, there we have to unpack these because each of these incidents are not they don't just stand alone and they're not just separate, unpredictable events. Do they speak to a larger structure about basic protection in our society? But once we move past the notion of physical violence, you know, with the younger generations, getting back to the issue of uh, diversity among our younger people and beyond values and content and debates about issues, how people might feel about certain things, if it's climate change or gun control. The question is whether the younger folks are trying to articulate a higher bar of respect. Hmm you know, compared to previous generations, that they just will not tolerate even at the level of debate and dispute the use of certain racial slurs. We talked about that last time. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. where Where is that threshold? Others might say, well, sticks and stones, you know, what's wrong with words? And mm-hmm. Well, let's, I don't know. Let's try to understand what's happening in the world to the EU. Mm-hmm. I turn to them as an example in their debates in their human rights courts to protect their religious minorities. They may not have the exact same structural issues that we have on the basis of race, ethnicity, or religion. But they, you know, on the more progressive side of the thinking, perhaps they, they might, you know, question the sacrosanct nature of the First Amendment. Oh, just say what you want. Mm-hmm. No, words can actually – they're religious groups, let's say in Islam
2: mm-hmm. –
1: where the you know the the the, the tolerance for blasphemy—it's not just a question of tolerance; it's unthinkable. It, it's just a different experience that to hear something so egregiously uh, attackful of somebody else's religion or ideas is almost causing bodily harm. Mm. And hence the you know the, the need for greater protections for those types of religious mo- minorities against blasphemy. So what's the trade-off? Free speech over there is like okay, I can just make fun of this or say this or say that. Yeah, in a Western white European context, it's secular. That's no one sees the harm. Yeah. But if you look at the experience from the other side, from the, the group that's facing the oppression, you know we need a higher bar. So I wonder, like, how can we how can we learn from that when we think about young people here today? Because they're they're making all kinds of demands regarding the parameters of speech. Mm-hmm. You know, they just don't they can't deal with the trauma and the sting of hearing that word once. Mm-hmm. That. Your generation, Erica, and mine, you know, we, we faced it as kids. We grew up with it. Right. And uh, it, it, it was the Du Boisian moment where we were, we lost our innocence. We thought, okay, well, we're just like everybody else, and suddenly we're made to feel different because of our skin color. Mm-hmm. Um, and perhaps there is a lingering trauma from that. I I do believe that at the age of 48, but be that as it may, that the, the, the issue is that the, the, our experience of that is not the experience of what young people have today and, and their level of tolerance for Ignorance is just, you know, it's very low. And I think we need to figure out how to deal with that.
0: Well, when we look at the, the community that we live in, you know, one of the reasons why we have bridged the divide, we're in a, a very homogenous community, which, you know, lends towards is the what de facto segregation. It's, it's a segregated community. Um, and when you try to talk about race, I think folks, their minds automatically go to the Klan. You know, there's maybe the, the neo-Nazi groups get in there. And, and the, the N-word, the, the, if you're not doing those things, then whatever you're doing has nothing to do with race. So um, I gave a, an example um, to a person that I was talking to about my children walking down the street uh, when we first moved here and my children present as black, you you know that they're black children. And to have somebody ride down the street and yell out the window to go back to where you came from, it wasn't because they thought they were something else. You know, they didn't say uh, a racial slur. They didn't. There was no physical threat of violence, there was no bodily harm. But we know exactly what they meant. We know what Mm -hmm. (laughs) the, the harm that my children have from that, and not because of a word or physical violence. So how do you how do you get that the point across that the issues that we're having with the racial tension don't only surface when you've said a racial slur, or you've physically harmed a person?
1: Yeah, and when when I I teach my courses and I have conversations with different groups, I try to think about the long duration of history. If we go back to the slave trade and colonization in the 1500s, and then what that meant for our own American context with African American slavery, a whole political economy was rooted and constitutionally defended uh, until the Civil War, and then eventually until and then Jim Crow emerges afterwards, separate but equal, but at least equal. In principle, of course, that's inherently unequal, which is why Brown v. Board came along to say that mm-hmm. separate but equal does not mean equal just because it's not slavery. Right. It doesn't make it any better. Right. But to go from slavery, which is just the physical control of a human being, rooted in some kind of moral justification of the superiority of, of you know, the predestined divine manifestation of, of whites that had the burden to you know, save and hope and, and inculcate Christianity, quite frankly to the 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 africans that came forcefully were extracted and and brought in as slaves and then to impose that that mentality that there's somehow some moral justification for the physical control of other human beings gave way to the separate but equal Mm -hmm. which then dissolved and gave way to civil rights but then we're now we're talking this new face what are we talking about when we mean we can't we're not talking about the classic white supremacy as in whites believing that they're essentially physically morally intellectually historically religiously superior in some way or another and therefore justifies their the privilege to control and dominate others we're not talking about that
2: mm-hmm.
1: we are talking though let's move away from that when we talk about general systems of privilege that perpetuate themselves in very microscopic ways very undetected ways I point uh, maybe the, your your audience and your readership would be interested in the work of Edward uh, Eduardo Bonilla Silva, who is a sociologist, African Dominican Republican, who um, wrote a book called "Racism Without Racists," and his argument is that there's a new. He he wrote this actually. It's interesting when you think about the Obama election in 2008, the first term, and we're talking about a context here where. If we're not talking about overt racism at the individual level or group level, people going around saying that this is a white country and this place and whiteness is a path towards civilization, that guy Richard Spencer, notorious figure, who tried to peddle this this insanity during the the Trump election. Mm. We can we can we can deal with that, which is still lingering. Obviously, it's not pervasive, but the fact that it still exists is kind of frightening. Mm-hmm. And not just kind of. Yeah. We're not talking about that. We're talking about this this colorblind. When when we say it's not about racial a sense of racial superiority, but there's just this subliminal sense that oh my, these other communities are not doing as well, or maybe they're to blame for drugs and poverty, or. The cyclical you know, nature of that or the fragmentation of family or it must be something in the culture or just a perpetuation of this fatalistic mentality that certain underprivileged, underrepresented groups are not doing as well as, let's say, other groups, particularly the, the you know, the white middle class and certainly the upper middle class and, and the elite. To, you know, when he talks about colorblind racism or post racial racism. Another author that people might want to check out is Robin D'Angelo, mm-hmm. who speaks of the concept of white fragility. And I think they're trying to address, you know, mainstream white liberals who may have grown up within a certain majority of themselves because neighborhoods are just de facto segregated, not legally or officially like Jim Crow,
2: mm-hmm. just,
1: just de facto segregation. There's just you know perpetuation. You just don't – there's a certain – The argument of Robin DiAngelo is that there's a certain fragility built into the community because there's an inability on the one hand to see the effects of privilege. There is a fear and or – and it's physiological. There's just sort of like a defensiveness that kicks in if you want to start talking about race or racism and to say that there's something like white privilege that implicates people in systems of control. Because the white liberal majority can say, look, this is not Jim Crow or slavery mm-hmm. or the Ku Klux Klan or lynching. Mm-hmm. But for these authors, there's just a, another modality of ways to evade the issue. And it's a very scary question. It's a moral question. Is privilege, by definition, the ability to continue your life Without having to sacrifice anything or change anything or to give something up for for the benefit of the other, and is the suffering of the other entirely connected to the fact that one group has that privilege that sounds abstract, but it's it's almost like the inability to understand that people are complicit with the suffering of others on the basis of race, but it doesn't show up as anything it doesn't show up as the belligerent person using the N word when they're drunk at a bar, or even this current president when he kind of goes off, uh, you know, the rails and tries to generalize, even though he thinks he's being, uh, you know, factual about some kind of sense of an emergency regarding the, the threat to American identity or uh, the safety of our country. But in fact, he's just literally just in, once again reappropriating these ridiculous tropes about stereotypes of people. So it's a new modality and I think this is what's so interesting to me, not because I teach in a college and I see young people but it's just my hunch that there there is some there's some relationship between the diversification of society and the inability to tolerate the most microscopic levels of you know, what, what are perceived as aggressions or you know, things that border on violating someone's basic dignity. There's just a I really love the young people because I think that that level of intelligence and sensitivity in diversity, they're raising the stakes with regard to what we mean by our democracy and our social contract. What are we committed to as values? I love that. What I don't like is the fact that because it's coming from their own oppression, like you and I know, Erica – Every group is at one point or another. It's because of their own oppression. They had to fight for the civil rights, Right, right. African-American, LGBTQ, mm-hmm. disability rights. Now trans, you know, if you think about the plight of trans people, the, the burden is always put on the oppressed to actually articulate what and tell their story. Like mm-hmm. You have no idea what it's like to be us. Right. And look what you're doing to us.
0: OK, Dr. Raj, we're going to take another break and we'll be right back. We're back with Dr. Raj. Thank you again for joining us and and dropping some some serious knowledge here, sir. Yeah, okay, go ahead, Dr. Raj. We were talking about being um, uh, the complicit, I think was the the last thing that that stood out for me. How do you, I guess, how do you discuss with someone who is defending their position, you know, and defending, I I am not a racist. How do you talk to them about how they're complicit in, What's occurring? Whether they were the the party that created it or activated it or not?
1: Yeah, it's it, and that's the interesting thing. It's not a question of trying to prove that someone else's self perception or conception is wrong and challenge them because that that too is completely yeah. offensive. If someone, if I go up to somebody else and say, "Hey, I, you really don't know who you are or what you think you are or what you feel you are," and I know better than you, and let me tell you, you know, that's that's like this, the peak of condescension. So that's not that's not the strategy. I, I, I guess it's, it's. I'm not trying to advocate for certain tactics or strategies to deal with this kind of complexity. I mean, as an academic, I, I study it. I do my best to try to translate that into hopefully conversations like this that can get you know a, a democratic group to to come together and think you know what can we do in terms of our politics or our legislatures at the local level to improve our communities. That's the ideal. But when I take a step back and I think about, yeah, how do, how do we talk about this? I guess my, my intuition or my concern is that with the younger generations comes this ethnographic, demographic, intersectional diversification. By intersectional, I mean not just a question of race or gender or sexuality or nationality or ability or disability, but sometimes you know we're talking about a confluence of all of these within the diversity. And from that arises – like I said, a higher bar of respect and understanding and dialogue and inclusion and building, you know, compassion and community. And from that should arise the ability of groups that may think of themselves as a homogenous group that's benign, that's not on the side of racism, for example, would be the first to step up and condone it. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: But to shift the discussion away from who we're going to attack as the racist or how do we figure out what that racist event is, to to just an understanding of what a system of privilege looks like. So, for example, if you are white today, um, there there's so many benefits that come from that that folks of color, particularly certain communities like the African American community, Latinx community, um, you just don't face during the course of the day. You, you may not think twice as uh, let's say a male who is walking down the street, daytime or nighttime. You're just trying to get from your campus to go home. Mm-hmm. And the chances of you maybe being stopped by a, a police officer, you have to be walking through a neighborhood, pretty slim. Unless mm-hmm. there's something happening and they're you know surveying that area because something they were called in. There's some incident. But if you're you know black and you're doing this exact same thing, you know at the same time, same hour, why is it that there's there could be a greater likelihood or chance that you could get pulled over mm-hmm. just because of either the implicit bias or you know, a whole myriad set of factors. So there, there is something to that privilege and some, the question for our democracy is not so much. How do we, on the one hand, how do we think about the greatest political issues and concerns of our day, whether it's the gun control or the climate change or health issues, um, debt, you know, student debt, those, those are the political debates that we're going to see that we're going to another election cycle. Mm-hmm. How do we shift from just discussing the political issues on the table to this question of you know truly embracing the diversity that's here and understanding that the values are changing, and what we've taken for granted for so long, even maybe a certain interpretation of the constitution or the Bill of Rights, it could mean one thing to one group of people. But that one interpretation for by that one group of people, could be interpreted in a completely different way by somebody else. Mm-hmm. The cake decision in Colorado looks like it was an, it was a defense of the the religious freedom of the individual, but it's such a nuanced decision that took place. Obviously, the harm is going to come to LGBTQ people mm-hmm. in that particular case. When it comes to you know being free from discrimination in commerce, I mean, on the one hand, the guy was arguing that he you know he didn't want to sell a cake knowingly to a group of people that he didn't think, you know, he thought violated his own religious beliefs. Mm-hmm. He could have, and he said, he, go get the cake somewhere else. Okay, so that's one level of discrimination. Mm-hmm. The other could be, was he compelled? This is what people don't really see the nuance of. Was he compelled to write on the cake, you know, a happy wedding or when he was linking up the question of in this quote-unquote homosexuality with marriage, which he didn't believe in even though marriage is legalized as of 2015,
2: mm-hmm.
1: that he was being compelled in the writing and in the inscription of the cake – by writing, he was thinking and actually condoning, and that is a violation of his own his own type of freedom of speech. Freedom of speech is not just being able to be free to say whatever you want; right. it's when you compel people to say something. That's a violation too, and so it, it gets so nuanced. And I, I wonder about just even taking that case. That there is a clash in the way people actually speak to each other, and the way they hear each other, the way they receive words, the way they interpret things, and. I mean, as a person of color, I I live that reality, and I I embrace the complexity, and I I get challenged by it every day.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: I I try to understand my own privilege as a cisgender, heterosexual male, uh, male assigned at birth, uh, male gender assigned at birth, is the phrase. So, cisgender uh, that has an enormous amount of privilege. I'm disprivileged by color if I'm brown because Mm -hmm. of you know my own race and also the census but i'm thinking more of the intersectional folks where there are two or three categories of minority status that converge and there's there's no way to really grasp that complexity because you you might want to just put the person in one category mm-hmm. if you're a queer person of color for example you know or if you're a, a woman of color mm-hmm. and if there's racism in general and there's sexism in general, but you're facing the convergence, how does that voice come out? How does that experience get articulated? Because if you're just looking at it from one lens, the racism lens or the sexism lens, you're gonna miss out on the convergence. And, which and as a lot we, of women of color articulate.
0: And as we talked about earlier, having to to be the person that has the burden to to bring that to everybody else's attention or to um to have people acknowledge it but it's it's the burden is on the the I guess, like the the woman of color example to to tell you and teach you and show you why that's not right which is not an, an easy feat in and of itself just having that conversation or being ready to uh, brace for whatever repercussions by Stepping into that realm and having that conversation with someone who has the power to um, affect your livelihood—if you have that conversation with
1: them—yeah, and I mean, and, and to take it back to the, the, the current moment and the fact that we're heading into another election cycle, I'm—I'm I'm actually very optimistic. Okay, you know, people are talking about pessimism and the fear and then the uncertainty as we head to this election all the drama surrounding this particular administration, the news cycle, and we contrast ourselves, let's say, in this this Western Hemisphere with another pluralistic, diverse quote-unquote democracy in Brazil that also has a legacy of slavery Mm -hmm. and that uh, black slavery, so the African slave trade. Mm -hmm. And people talk about the authoritarian figure that just arose there, and you know, you don't want to compare the two contexts. But and then we can think about the complexities of Western European societies that are diversifying, and thinking about their pluralism and their issues with the refugee crisis coming in from Africa, the plight of religious minorities, particularly uh, Muslims, in Western European societies. What I see in our context here in the United States is the, the this, this tremendous acceleration of the diversity. In in my perception, is being accompanied by a very robust. Um, sensitivity and intelligence that I see, because I see the kids debating,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and it's just getting younger and younger, which means, let's say, the debates normally would have taken place for a couple of generations ago in your, your late teens, and mm-hmm. you want to try to grapple with this complexity. But what happens when it starts to happen when you're 10 or 11, <laughs> right. or 12? Well, right. I remember what it was like being 10 or 11 and dealing with the white majority and quite frankly, the Latinx migrant, Mexican migrant labor um community that i I basically grew up in Mm -hmm. even though i'm indian american from my parents from india in a small rural town in california so i saw the kind of diversity of that age it was very polarized between white and non-white but and i was one of the few of my own racial group Mm -hmm. trying to negotiate that kind of complexity to different other cultures that didn't speak to my own culture and um but fast forward to, to today when you see that younger people are able to articulate and grapple with, with such courage and vehemence, mm-hmm. and you hear that on the climate change. So I, I, it's not political. I mean, I think both Democrats and Republicans, everything in between, and whoever wants to constitute themselves an independent across the spectrum
2: mm-hmm.
1: I put it back in the generational terms that everybody, if you're older, you're going to have to learn how to talk to the younger folks about these policy issues. Mm-hmm. They have the exigency, and so I see a lot of – I see so much – I'm very optimistic. I see a lot of great conversations, discussions happening and learning across the sides. But the people that are going to be around and are going to shape whether our species survives or not – (laughs) <laughs> it's not the seventy-five and over. What's right, it's that, going to be? True. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's got to be the zero to thirty, zero to forty. whatever you want zero to forty, whatever zero to something. Yeah, that's going to be the bedrock for um, whether our, our society can strengthen itself as a democracy and become something greater than, than it is or has been.
0: That is but encouraging. Also, like, I'll take that. <laughs>
1: But address, but have the courage to address injustice, which is the reparational mm-hmm. argument. That there are groups there that are still striving for that equality have been facing the longest-standing oppression, like African Americans and and um, uh, other groups who are, you know, that feeling of hope and, and optimism that we're going to go to the next level. Our society needs to recognize that and embrace that completely.
0: Mm-hmm. Dr. Raj, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate you uh, taking some some time out of your busy day, and we're really going to be the better for it. So I thank you for talking to our listeners. Um, Bridge the divide, folks. Take a listen. Dr. Raj has some good stuff to say. Thank you very much, and we will uh, talk to you guys on the next, the next go-round.
1: Thank you, Erica. It's always a pleasure, and I hope we get to do this again.